I founded the BeWell Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. In today's episode, we look at gut health and how certain foods, which follow the FODMAP diet, can help relieve symptoms of IBS. With up to 15% of the worldwide population suffering with IBS, it can significantly lead to a decreased quality of life with painful symptoms, people experiencing diarrhea, abdominal bloating, and many more. It can also lead to symptoms of anxiety and depression. With our shelves constantly stacked full of probiotic products that promise to balance our microbiome, how helpful is this for people with IBS? Is there really any treatments that can help relieve the symptoms? Is it fully on diet or is there other lifestyle factors that are also important to take? In today's episode, I speak to Jane Muir, who heads up nutrition for the last 15 years at Monash University and has worked there for 20 years. She brings her expertise and knowledge to help guide you through the FODMAP diet and how it can treat and support people suffering with IBS. Now I have to say, this is the second time that we recorded the podcast. The first time it didn't actually record properly and we had some sound problems. So I'm so thankful for Jane coming on for the second time to be here and explain to you everything about the FODMAP diet. Hi Jane, welcome to Live Well Be Well for the second time. Um, how are you today? Hi Sarah, I'm fine and um, happy to be here. You know, we'll get this recorded <laughs> and um, no worries. We're just happy to, glad to come back and, and do this again. Yeah, for I'm glad you. it wasn't, you know, it wasn't from my end. It was some other technical glitch because it's usually something I've done. Exactly. Very delighted to be here talking about FODMAPs again. Well, thank you for coming back on because I know that for people who aren't aware, we did try to record this about four weeks ago and sadly it didn't record properly. You heard my voice and not Jane's, which was not the most helpful. So we're back here again today. Um, So I'd love to start off, Jane, by could you just give a little bit of an introduction about everyone who's listening, because I know that you've been at Monash University for the last 15 years. Um, And could you give me a little rundown of what you do uh, with the FODMAP project and what is the FODMAP project at Monash University? Yes, well, thanks for that, um, Sarah. Actually, I've been at Monash nearly 20 years now. Um, Oh, wow, I've got my facts completely wrong. Okay, 20 years. But working on FODMAP, the FODMAP project, probably about 15. So I actually joined... I joined Monash um, to work with Peter Gibson, Professor mm-hmm. Gibson, who I'd known for many, many years, and I joined him as a dietitian. Um, and we were interested in working on developing diet therapies, um, particularly our focus was inflammatory bowel disease, actually. Um, and so I, I started working with Peter um, 20 years ago at Monash University, so the Department of Gastroenterology there and I've been there ever since. 
Um, and the FODMAP story really came about uh, around about 2005, I suppose, really started to, to take off um, interest in this area and I started to work in this area. Um, then, um, and it really, it came out of a common problem that was being found in the clinics for the gastroenterologists. So about 50% of the patients that were presenting with symptoms, um, IBS symptoms, so in, it was irritable bowel syndrome symptoms of um, basically people, it was just a very common problem presenting and people didn't really know what to do. They didn't have inflammatory bowel disease or serious um, diseases like inflammatory bowel disease and colorectal cancer or celiac disease, they end up with this diagnosis of IBS and I guess there wasn't a lot that could be done for them. Um, so that was the problem that was presenting. That was very common. I think about 50% of people coming into clinic would end up with this diagnosis of IBS. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the problem was um, really trying to tackle that and looking at diet as an option because they all did um, report that certain foods were triggering their symptoms and so our interest in diet started then and there was there's been a you know a team of people involved with this and uh, over the years we have developed it into um, I guess yeah sort of an area where we've shown um, really understood perhaps you know what is going on here much much more than we did uh, to the point where we can really help people in this area with this condition which is very very rewarding yeah. for us all absolutely well i mean ibs affects one in seven people which is around 15 percent of the population worldwide so it's a big issue and mm. you know personally myself i've suffered with it and i know a lot of people that have um and could you explain for people that are listening because obviously you said 50 percent of people that were coming into your clinic were suffering mm. with this um and that's going back to 2005 as well when gut health probably wasn't as prominent as it is today talked about in that sense anyway we're much more aware but would you be able to now explain really what is IBS and what are the symptoms and how do you know if you suffer from it? Uh, well I mean it's it's basically it's a it's a complex condition and mm. um, it relates to gastrointestinal symptoms so there can be abdominal pain and distension, bloating, wind, um, altered bowel habit, which you can actually have diarrhea or go to constipation or a mixture of both. Um, and it is, but these symptoms are actually very typical of other conditions. So that's why it's terribly important to go to your doctor and have these sorts of symptoms checked out to make sure there's nothing serious going on. Um, so it's really, it's, it's this symptom-based condition and it will be diagnosed based on the symptoms and there's certain criteria that have to be um, you know met I suppose to help with the diagnosis but it basically is it's a symptom based um, there's no nothing you can test as in take a blood sample or even a stool sample and and say yes a diagnose of IBS based on this so it's really based on the symptoms um, that people are reporting yeah. And uh, it is quite debilitating for some people and it really does um, affect their quality of life. And uh, there was a survey done a few years ago that asked people with IBS, just asking them about you know, quality of life and they, they said that they would give up 15 years of life actually wow. for an immediate cure. 
mm. which is um, terrible, really. So yeah. It really can affect your quality of life. So, you know, it's very important that we, you know, develop strategies and therapies and options to treat people with this, trying to manage this condition. No, I think that's fantastic that you actually just said that because I think the term can be thrown around quite lightly that the fat someone's suffering with IBS, but as you said, it can really, really affect someone's quality of life. And as I don't know if anyone's aware, but there isn't a cure for IBS. Um, and sometimes it's not a simple diagnosis to say, well, take this tablet and, and you'll be okay. It's more about looking at the lifestyle approach, I think, with IBS, which is what you do at, at Monash. Um, and could we just talk a little bit about, before we go into FODMAPs, about the gut and brain connection with IBS because I know I mentioned to you earlier but talking about we have this constant connection between our gut and our brain and with people that IBS it seems to be overstimulated and not working as efficiently as it should be and would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Well yes in fact the, there's a big gut brain connection we, we call our gut like a second it's like a second brain yeah really. second brain um, and there's just millions of neurons you know um, around the gut and um, normally we're pretty we're pretty unaware of the job our gut is doing we're not aware of the digestion and all those various things motility that's going on in the gut mm-hmm. um, it's sort of looked after by the second brain but there is a connection between the gut and our brain. There's sort of this, this vagus nerve, and in some people, you know, there's just there's this, you know, they they're talking to each other and they can sense um, what's going on in the gut. This um, uh, chatter that goes on, which means they can be very sensitive to, you know, distension of the gut, um, which might be as a result of gas or you know um, sort of excess water flowing into the gut mm-hmm. and um, this is um, uh, what we call hypersensitivity um, and people with IBS have hypersensitive or gut hypersensitivity that means that they're just very sensitive to the distension of their gut their, the, um, their second brain is picking up Mm. On and they're they're sensing these these things which normally you would not you would not sense. Um, mm. So it's really um, um, this hypersensitivity of the of the gut um, in people who've got IBS is is sort of you know a real issue. And if we can disrupt that connection, and there's a number of ways that that can be done. Um, things like stress and, the, and caffeine the I stress guess, yes triggers. so there's a number of the, the approaches are this mm-hmm. we can reduce this distension of the gut this bloating and distension so the, the stimulus of the of the um, the lumen of the um, the, the cells that the neurons that line the gut so we can reduce that bloating and distension by not having highly fermented foods like the FODMAP diet that can help because you just don't have that stimulus there Mm -hmm. but we can also try and break that connection between the gut and the brain and that's where you know things like hypnotherapy have been used um yes even yoga have been used yes so and it is it's around stress really and that really does seem to help to break this connection between the brain and the gut and so that these this hypersensitivity 
this issue is, is greatly improved. So it is really worthwhile. There's a number of strategies, therefore, to help people manage their symptoms. And it's not just diet. No. It's not just diet. But diet is, it can help enormously, but there are other things you can do as well. Yeah, I think that's really important to mention. Before we go on talking about the diet approaches and the FODMAP, I think it is really important that when anybody comes into clinic with any kind of GI distress, looking at lifestyle is really important. So managing stress. And sometimes I actually did a podcast, our last episode on stress. And sometimes people don't realise actually how stressed they are. And they're living with chronic stress, which is obviously affecting their gut quite heavily. So Mm -hmm. it's managing stress, but it's also putting in different lifestyle techniques. As you said, hypnotherapy could be one of them, meditation, breath work. And is that something that you talk about a lot at Monash as well when you're looking at the gut-brain connection? We do actually have, so our team is sort of, we have a, you know, a range of people, multidisciplinary team. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have a hypnotherapist on the team. So that uh, we, we have um, cognitive behaviour therapy as well, mm-hmm. psychologists, hypnotherapists, as well as dietitians, all part of the team to help manage the condition that, they, that our patients are presenting with. And um, it needs that sort of approach, I think, to help people. Sometimes it's just diet is not the answer mm-hmm. and diet hasn't worked for them. Yeah. And so it's looking at the full 360 approach, which I think is really important. Um, so can you explain to me for everyone that's listening, what are FODMAPs? So FODMAPs are a collection of short-chain carbohydrates or sugars. Um, look, they're naturally found in food, so they're naturally there. Um, and But they tend to trigger symptoms of IBS, such as bloating and gas and pain. And they do this because they can be, um, they're poorly absorbed in the small intestine. They can reach the bowel where they can be fermented by the gut microbiota that inhabits the gut. Mm-hmm. Um, they can also, they, some of them are quite small, osmotically active, which means they, they pull water in. They mm-hmm. can pull water into the gut and that can lead to distension, discomfort and diarrhea in some people. So they... They have a range of effects, these guys, which can all contribute to the symptoms of IBS. And we have found through our research um, that if we create diet that reduces the levels of these sugars, the FODMAP sugars, then we can, you know, provide a lot of symptom relief mm. for our patients with IBS. And it works in 75% of patients, so it's very powerful. Um, and it really is about, it's not about avoiding foods, it's really about swapping foods. So it's really swapping a low FODMAP food for a high FODMAP food. So each food group, fruits, vegetables, all food groups that have them, you simply swap a low FODMAP food. So you might have, you know, some strawberries instead of some apples, something like that. You're just swapping, still having fruit, but just swapping out the high FODMAP choice for a low FODMAP alternative. So it is, um, it's very effective. Um, and now uh, scientists in different parts of the world have shown that the diet's effective. And a lot of work's been done also in group in London, actually at King's College. So we have colleagues there and different parts of the world have shown the diet is, is very effective in helping, you know, control the symptoms of IBS. Yeah. 
And so there's obviously a long list of different foods that are high high FODMAP, which obviously you want to reduce, and low FODMAP foods, which you tend to lean more towards when you're figuring out what your triggers are. But say I know a lot of people that come to my clinic and just feel completely overwhelmed with the FODMAP diet and they haven't gone to a dietitian who specializes in the FODMAP diet or a lot of people just start researching on their own. Um, I know I've had a lot of direct messages on Instagram to me about people that are feeling so overwhelmed with the FODMAP diet and basically end up not eating very much. Um, Mm. What would your advice be as a dietitian who started the FODMAP diet um, to be to those listeners who are listening now who haven't started the FODMAP diet or maybe have but felt so restricted that actually didn't help their symptoms at all what would your advice be for somebody who's about to go on a journey of the FODMAP diet and how to approach it correctly well I think it's important to note a few things first of all it's very important to get a proper diagnosis of IBS so you must go to your doctor and get the diagnosis get a positive diagnosis of it. And the second thing is to really get a referral to a dietitian or find a dietitian who has expertise in this area. Um, because the, the diet really is a very important three-step process. It's not, it's not a diet for life. It's not just one, you know, it's not a strict low form of diet for life and it's just not one diet. There's these important three steps. And the first step, is really kind of the stricter phase, if you like, where you go low FODMAP for only two to six weeks. Mm-hmm. And that's when you follow the low FODMAP diet. Now, there are a number of tools out there, resources to help you follow that. A dietitian will help you follow that. We've produced an app, smartphone app, to help guide people on, on choosing low FODMAP. So there's basically, there's a range of tools there. You need to be taught how to use them. So that's the low FODMAP diet, just for two to two to six weeks, sometimes eight weeks. Then then the second phase is this reintroduction phase where each individual FODMAP sugar will be introduced one at a time to work out which is your particular FODMAP trigger sugar because everyone is different. Mm -hmm. Very important to say. Yes. And so you need to identify which is your particular trigger FODMAP sugar. It may be fructose, it might not be. It might be sorbitol, it might be the polyols, it might be fructans only. You might be able to tolerate galactoliposaccharides or GOS. So this is where you need, again, a dietitian to help you with that reintroduction. You reintroduce, in it. it's a very systematic way it's done, mm-hmm. one FODMAP sugar at a time, and then you basically, the dietitian will help then to personalise your diet, and that's just the final step is really this personalization phase where you you can reintroduce all those FODMAP sugars that you can tolerate. You learn about which foods they are located in, which are the foods you need to be careful of because they have the FODMAP sugar that you can't tolerate. Mm-hmm. And then you can actually sometimes learn how much you can eat. In fact, that's what we really encourage people to do is to sometimes you just need to have a smaller serve of something with one of your FODMAP triggers in it because you yes. just can't tolerate a large serve. So it's really just having half a serve and you're fine. Mm-hmm. So it's really learning. It's very dose dependent. It's very specific, FODMAP specific. So it, everyone's different. Everyone has their own sugars that will trigger their symptoms. That'll be different to the next person. And it's a learning diet. Mm-hmm. Essentially, you have to learn how, um, how to manage this condition which are the FODMAP sugars that trigger your symptoms 
Where are they found in food? How much can you tolerate? And a dietitian is your coach really all the way through this process. They will teach you how to manage this condition, how to learn about what's in food. It's very empowering mm. once you, once you um, can do this, but you really do need help. It's very hard to do this on your own, very hard to do this um, just going Googling and seeing what's online. You really do need help with this. And it's very, very simple, you know, I'm a dietitian, it's very standard. But dietitians who are trained in this area, it's, it's something they do every day. So that'll be very, very good and helpful um, at teaching you how to manage this condition. And so I sort of strongly recommend room recommend that but it's not a strict diet for life you said it's more a learning diet yeah um, you're learning about what's in food and um, which sorts of foods might trigger your symptoms yeah I think that's fantastic advice one to say that obviously we're all very individual but two to really seek a dietitian's help because I think that's where a lot of people feel quite overwhelmed with the FODMAP diet and even maybe hearing it in the different phases it is about, you know, download the FODMAP, the FODMAP um, Monash app, which can also give you some really good background knowledge. And you have a fantastic patient short course on there, don't you? Um, we have as um, well. We have, well, the patient course is actually on our, uh, from our website. It's not actually mm. on the app. But the app does have a lot of information. It has not just a food guide, but we have recipes and we have um, information about certified, well, foods that, food industry that are produced that are low FODMAP, so we sort of tested them and we know they're low FODMAP. We also have a directory for dietitians who are trained and actually there's lots of dietitians trained in the UK so you can find your own local dietitian through the app as well. Um, That's and fantastic. they're people who we have trained so that you know they're really expert in the area. Mm. So it's actually a great resource in many ways. Um, but we do have a little patient information course as well. And that all helps to back up what the dietitian's telling you because often it's hard to remember all the information that they're giving you and, mm-hmm. and you can watch this at your leisure, I suppose, at home and watch the videos. We just try to make it as informative and useful as an educational tool to, as a, to help with, with your training from the dietitian. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll pop that all in my show notes because I know that also you've been fantastic in giving our listeners a small percentage off the the patient course so I'll pop the the code and all the website details in my show notes for anyone who's listening and is going to go on the low FODMAP diet after a positive diagnosis I definitely will urge you to please look at the short course and also download the app because it's a really good learning tool as you're going through but something that I'd love to talk about within the FODMAP diet is you spoke about it not being long term which is really important, I think, to emphasise that people don't feel that they have to be on such a restriction for a long period of time. And normally you start reintroducing around six to eight weeks. Mm. Um, but what happens to people that feel that they're too worried to introduce foods again? What advice would you give to them? Because I think there can be a lot of anxiety with mm. certain triggers. And as you said, it's very dose dependent. What would your advice be for anybody who's just quite nervous about reintroducing foods back into their diet again after being on this for about six to eight weeks? Well, this is a common issue and mm. um, because people often find they've got, you know, relief from their pain and discomfort after so often years yeah. 
of um, being, you know, of suffering really, and they they're worried and anxious about reintroducing anything that could trigger their symptoms again, and that's mm. absolutely understandable. Uh, but this is where working with the dietitian closely is so useful and important, and they will help, you know, guide you and I said be a coach through it because you. You need to, I mean, the thing about staying on a high restrictive diet, there's a number of, there's a number of, you know, factors with that. It, it actually can be quite isolating socially. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard yes. for you to go out. And yeah, just, eating you know, out would be a, Eating yeah. out. Yeah. So, um, there, so there's that, there's sort of a sort of a social isolating effect of it. There's also um, the fact that you might be missing out on some nutrients as well, although the dietitian will help you, you know, make sure you have got a balanced diet and you certainly can have a balanced diet, but, you know, some of your options are limited mm-hmm. and so your overly restricting is, is not good longer term. There are some, some of the FODMAPs are actually quite important for the gut microbiota, so they're prebiotic, if you like, and... Um, so you don't want to overly restrict unnecessarily, particularly if you can tolerate, you know, can tolerate those sorts of FODMAPs. So it's important to work out what you can tolerate and, and reintroduce um, so that you can get back to as close as a normal diet as possible mm-hmm. with just a few, few restrictions. So I think that um, it's just important to, yeah, to work at it. I think the other thing that we have found that with people who have restricted and then have gone for years on a very highly restricted diet, it actually becomes harder to reintroduce. And um, the longer you leave it, actually the harder it is. Mm -hmm. And they seem to become hyper, even just hypersensitive to things. So um, there's a, you know, there's a bit of an issue there, which probably needs a bit more research done on it, but it's just something we have observed that people who have, you know, being very restricted for a very long time, actually find it really hard to reintroduce. So that's why we we try and get it, yeah, earlier. Yeah, um, there could and also people be understand. A, a psychosomatic point to that as well. The longer it goes on, and the fear that builds up around the reintroducing it as well, I think could be a of course, huge yeah, factor. of course. And that's where stress and and anxiety comes in. So. Mm-hmm. You know the hypnotherapy or you know the meditation and all these other things that will help you manage the stress and anxiety will probably also help you through that reintroduction period but you know there's a whole lot of reasons why it's important yeah. and um and not to leave um, it too long i mean you did mention to too long. two great points there that actually have brought me very nicely onto my next two questions because you mm-hmm. spoke about the you know when it's longer term there's more risk of becoming nutrient deficient in certain vitamins and minerals and one thing that we are very deficient in within the uk especially is fiber mm. now there's a big link between you know, going on the low FODMAP diet and maybe being at risk from a fiber um, intake, a lower fiber intake. And in the UK, we only reach around 18 grams a day instead of the um, recommended 30 grams a day. And fiber has been quite a buzzword recently um, in the nutrition field about the importance of dietary fiber and how it works to support our gut microbes. And mm-hmm. you also mentioned prebiotics, which is one mm-hmm. form of, of dietary fiber for those who are listening, you have probiotics and you have prebiotics. And that's a bit like a fertilizer for our gut is how I explain mm-hmm. it. And it helps feed our gut microbes. Um, 
what's your view as uh, a dietitian working on the FODMAP diet for anybody um, who's worried about their fiber intake? And how does fiber actually affect the FODMAP diet? Because there's a lot of high fiber foods that are um, high FODMAP foods as well. That's right. It's actually very challenging um, when you're on the diet to maintain you know, your fibre intake. And that's where, again, a dietitian can be so terribly important. Mm. And we, so it's important to encourage the consumption of foods that naturally contain fibre, which are also low FODMAP. So the, the vegetables, the low mm-hmm. FODMAP, the fruits, the low FODMAP. And there are grains and cereals, of course, that are also low FODMAP. And you can choose the higher fibre sort of versions of those, if you like. Mm-hmm. But it's actually, there's not a lot in the supermarket that is low FODMAP and high fibre <laughs> because um, they all tend to be, you know, high in wheat and, you know, rye. Rye is very high FODMAP. And mm. so it can be very tricky, very, very, very tricky indeed. Um, so that's when you may need to go to a fibre supplement okay. or fibre, things like, for example, or, you know, things like rice bran. Mm-hmm. oat bran, um, uh, low FODMAP type fibrous, you know, sources. You can supplement your diet. There's linseeds. Mm-hmm. Um, in the app, actually, there's a whole lot of seeds and things like that that can help. Uh, there are even some supplements also, but you know, need to make sure it's low FODMAP, so you have to check that out with your dietitian. Mm. Uh, but it, there are strategies there to help. And I think also, actually, I don't know... In Melbourne at the moment, we're in stage four lockdown. <laughs> um, I know, but the last time we spoke, you were just going into we're lockdown still, yeah, and you're still, still in here. it. Yeah. We're still here. <laughs> and um, we've noticed a lot of people, a constipation's a real problem yeah. at the moment because people are not going, you know, we're not moving. They're not you know, moving. We're, just all, we're not moving enough. And, uh, you know, people's diets affected and people's activity, you know, we're very inactive really mm-hmm. relative to what we used to be when you're, running around and it's just and constipation is so it's basically affected by not just diet it's actually you know other things affect um bowel habit as well yeah uh, which is important movement yeah mm-hmm. movement is important terribly important and, and water and fluid intake um, because fibers need water to hydrate and hydrate they need to hold the water yeah so um, that's a common problem i see with a lot of people that end up going on a super high fiber diet and not drinking enough water and then having mm-hmm. a lot of gi distress and so the importance is that if you are having a high fiber diet to make sure also you're having a good intake of water as well of water yeah and the other thing that makes the low fiber diet probably particularly you know can be you know i guess it can be um I guess constipating for some people also is that we've mm. taken out the um, the water pulling sugars mm-hmm. and that Could is. Could you explain the sugar... what that is? Well, the 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 sugars that are osmotically active that means they draw water into into the bowel into yep. the small bowel. So that's like the fructose and the sugar polyols, for example, and that's important because that basically helps with laxation. So the water coming into the bowel being pulled in by these sugars mm-hmm. um, helps with prevention of constipation. Mm-hmm. So it's part of the normal bowel habit, uh, good bowel habit, because as I said, you do need water to mm-hmm. have to form stool and you need to have fibre to help hold the water. 
So um, again, a low FODMAP diet can be tricky because it is it, these sugars are restricted on the low FODMAP diet. So what some dietitians who are very comfortable and experienced in this area might do is if this is an issue, they might you know look to see whether these water pulling FODMAPs sugars you can tolerate those um, when you were doing reintroduction might do that fairly early on and then they might be the ones you really try and get back into a level that you can tolerate and they may well help with yeah. the constipation as well so it, it can really it's just a balancing act um, it's a learning act all the way through isn't it it's it, it's, yeah. it's a very tricky one because as speaking about prebiotic foods for people that aren't aware that's things like garlic onions leeks um jerusalem artichokes chicory and that's actually a lot of high fodmap foods so the the prebiotics that um, we know that are fantastic for our gut and our microbes and actually can help increase certain probiotic bacteria bacteria such as bifidobacteria which can actually help in ibs um you have to limit on the low fabmark diet so as you said it's all about that learning process and working with a, ma- a fantastic dietitian but also maybe looking at supplements if you can't include these and they are triggers mm. for you yes safe safe supplements that will help you safe, yeah, exactly and that's where a dietitian can come in yes yes really absolutely and i think some people when they do reintroduce find for example that GOS is a FODMAP that they can tolerate. So these are galacto-oligosaccharides that are found Mm -hmm. in legumes, for example, very high in legumes, that um, we found about 30% of people can tolerate this particular FODMAP group quite well, which is great because Mm -hmm. it's an important group if you're vegetarian or vegan, of course. For protein as Um, well, yep. Yes, so that you know that's really, and that's a prebiotic. So it's a good one to, again, to work out quickly and yeah. encourage that one to come in and that will help with um well it helps add to your fiber intake and will help with your bowel habit as well yeah because we do want to make sure that we're hitting a good fiber intake because fiber is important for so many different reasons um and leaning on that as well probiotics so we've got prebiotics and probiotics now apart from one letter which is different in the spelling what is um your opinion on probiotics because a lot of people look turn to as soon as they have you know any kind of ibs symptoms think i should take a probiotic but there are so many different strains Mm. and it's really dependent on the correct strain for what you're experiencing really from my research if it's going to have any effect um and any advantages of taking that probiotic so what's for anyone who's listening and thinking should i take a probiotic and if i should how do i know if i'm getting the right one what's your advice um for people suffering with ibs and the research surrounding probiotics well it's another question we get a lot actually about probiotics it's (laughs) it's some people are very interested and um you know very very keen to try probiotics Mm-hmm. We usually say and advise, you know, to start to do one thing at a time. So if you're, if you're trying the diet, the low FODMAP diet, we, we usually just start with that and go through with that rather than mix them up with probiotics. So we'll go all the way through the low FODMAP diet. And if during that final stage, that personalization stage where there might be some symptoms, you know, that, you know, just might just a few extra symptoms you might want to mop up in some way. Yeah. You might explore probiotics with your dietitian. Now, the di- your dietitian should be able to recommend one that has got 
scientific evidence behind it. So it will be a mixture of bacteria that they've done a, a study um, in people with IBS to show that actually does do something. Mm-hmm. So um, and there are they are out there, but it it does vary from country to country. So it'll be different what we have in Australia to what you have over there. So I, I do recommend you talk to your dietitian mm-hmm. to find out what is available. But it's important to have one that has been tested and used in people who've got IBS symptoms. Yes. Um, there are other things like peppermint oil. You know, people mm-hmm. um, to relax the bowel. Yes, that helps. That really does help as well. Again, helping with just mopping up some of these symptoms. Um, and Iberogast has got some evidence too. That's um, So there's a, there's a few little things out there that there's some evidence for helping, you know, just uh, helping with some of these, with some symptoms, which mm. can be greatly reduced, um, but not quite, you know, to resolved. But I think it's also important to remember that you don't, you know, it's normal not to have a dormant bowel. I mean, yes. we do have gas mm-hmm. and we do fart and that's just, it's all just part of it. It's being all being human. Being human, that's yeah. right. So, And also shouldn't... things such as the menstrual cycle for any women, sorry, the men that are listening obviously won't, won't understand this, but also things such as your menstrual cycle can really um, trigger GI problems and, and you know it can and it, absolutely and some women you know very much so yeah absolutely such a journey it's such a multifaceted journey of how it many is. things that can really affect your um your gut health you know and it's not it's, always as simple as as one answer and I love that you've constantly repeated throughout every question the individualization approach to this that there's not one answer that fits all no that's right and no, it's really and this journey that you go on to try and understand all of these different factors from food to stress to your lifestyle to movement and exercise, which you've said as well. That's mm. a huge thing, especially regarding constipation, um, dietary fiber, probiotics, prebiotics. Um, there's so many different things that you need to look at, which I think is what we're now becoming much more aware of, that it's not a quick mm. fix. No, that's right. It's not. No, it's definitely a learning, a journey. And, yeah, uh, but it's very rewarding. I think at the end of it, um, people have you know they have control back of their you know their condition, um, and you don't need to have you know drugs may not be required at all. You yes. know you might be able to manage it with all of these various um, strategies. Yeah. Yeah, strategies. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah, and it's really I think that is a thing that when you are in that sense that you feel quite beaten up by IBS or whatever the problem is that's going on with your gut health, you do feel like you don't have any control. And I think that's the really debilitating part is not knowing mm. the first steps to take. And hopefully this podcast can help direct people into the different areas and strategies that they can take to take control back. Mm. But I think a huge thing as well that I really wanted to pick up on um, in this podcast with you. Um, we did speak about it last time um, and I didn't realize how much research you guys have done into it. About 10 mm. years ago, the gluten um, the gluten arena was, was, was taking control of quite hard with people that didn't have celiac disease, but everybody started cutting out gluten to mm. see if it affected their gut health. And then a lot of people were told, well, if you don't have celiac disease, gluten won't affect you at all. It's simply a protein and you'll be fine and you shouldn't be eating 
you should be going gluten-free unless you have celiac disease. And it's only 1% of the population that suffer with celiac disease. Um, mm. But some people still felt quite sensitive to eating gluten. Um, and then there's a term that's come around, especially um, highlighted in the last few years, regarding non-celiac sufferers. So it's people that don't mm. have celiac disease, but do experience intolerances to wheat and gluten. Now, I know that you guys at Monash have looked into this quite a lot. Um, and I'd love to you to expand for some people that might not have even heard of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is abbreviated as NG, um, sorry, NCGS. You know, yes. what is this? And, you know, is it a real thing um, for people that are listening? You know, do you, if you do call it gluten, could it help if you weren't a celiac? Um, could you give a little bit of explanation really around this subject? Yes, I'd love to, because it has been a real journey for us, that whole area. It's a different type of a pandemic, really. We yeah. were feeling in Australia, was everyone was going gluten-free and we just couldn't work it out. And there were people who were presenting with, you know, gastrointestinal symptoms. In fact, there was a survey done by an organisation called CSIRO here. And they, I think they surveyed about 1,000 Australians and it was a huge, it was about 20% of them seemed to be going gluten-free. Um, but the, the most common reason was gut-related symptoms and they were very IBS-sounding symptoms to mm -hmm. us. They were basically sound like IBS. So we thought, well, maybe this gluten is triggering symptoms. And these are people who don't have celiac disease. So celiac disease will affect about 1% of the population, not 15 to 20% mm -hmm. of the population. So we've done it. We did a, carried out a number of studies um, with people who we call non-celiac gluten sensitive or non-celiac wheat sensitive is the other is the other name. Mm -hmm. um, and the the important study that the most important study that we did was sort of like a very controlled, randomised, um, placebo sort of study where we had um, a control group. We had gluten. Um, at two different doses and we had a control which was of no gluten. We provided the diet to, to these people. We recruited um, people, about 30, 40 people I think, who were non-celiac gluten sensitive, so they didn't have celiac disease. Um, and we basically put them on this diet. It was sort of, they didn't know which diet they were on because they were randomised to three different diets and they crossed over so they ended up trialing all the different diets and we found just basically no no evidence of a trigger from gluten for their mm. gut symptoms but what we did find and before we started people on the diet we knew that FODMAPs were potentially a confounder that means they could they could have triggered symptoms and we wanted we wanted to make sure that they were not going to interfere with the results. So we actually put people on a low FODMAP diet and we trained them on the low FODMAP diet for two weeks before they started the study. So we sort of call it a run-in period. And they ran in two weeks, low FODMAP. End of two weeks, they felt fabulous and their symptoms are very, very low. And then we started to the different diets and they didn't really know when they would be given the gluten, but they knew that they were getting gluten. Um, and what we found was that all, the, all of the symptom resolution and improvement came in the first two weeks. But after we started the study and we started to give them food, and it was really over three weeks, foods, they knew gluten may be there. It was completely random as to how they reacted. And there was no 
no, um, no triggering of additional symptoms because between high gluten and low gluten. In fact, the placebo, which was no gluten, um, gave the um, highest, highest oh, wow. sort of... Yeah, so it was, the gluten looked like it was slightly protective. And so what... But, but everyone had symptoms, and we call that the nocebo response, which is the opposite to placebo. Mm. So that people were expecting that we were, they knew that they were going to get gluten. They didn't know when. So they were expecting to experience some symptoms, so and they all did. Psychosomatic, yeah, psychosomatic. They all effect. did, and it was called nocebo response, and they all reported symptoms, and there was absolutely no difference between the gluten arms or the placebo, no gluten arms. Um, but all the benefit, all the symptom resolution came in that running period with the low FODMAP diet. We couldn't believe this result, so we actually got them back and we repeated the study mm-hmm. and we got it again. Wow. We got it again. So it was a real result. So we couldn't quite figure out what was going on. Um, uh, there goes our hypothesis out the window, which is often happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we started, of course, at the same time in our lab, we were doing a lot of food testing. We were doing all the FODMAP testing of all the foods. And there was this sort of real light bulb moment when I just um, plotted out really all of the grain cereals, FODMAP content of grain cereals. And it was all the gluten-free grains and all the gluten-containing grains. And you could just see this amazing curve where... Mm-hmm. All of the gluten-free grains were very low FODMAP. They were just naturally low FODMAP. All the gluten, uh, gluten-free grains, sorry, gluten-free grains were all naturally low in FODMAP. All gluten-containing grains were very high FODMAP. And so by selecting gluten-free, you just happen to select a low FODMAP diet. So you're going to get some symptom improvement simply because you've got a lower fructan intake. And it's fructan is the, is the name. FODMAP in, in grains and cereals. So wow. that was that so was sort of a it's huge... travelling with the gluten, which is why people are getting those effects, but it's not the actual gluten itself. It's not gluten. So gluten is being blamed, but poor it's gluten. actually not poor old gluten. <laughs> so this was, this was, like, this was a real moment. <laughs> so all yeah. the pieces of the puddle started to fall, you know, into place. And that explains so much. I mean, people who go gluten-free do feel some relief of symptoms but it's not the whole answer yes. you know like they're still not Always the whole answer and it's the because <laughs> they're not nutrition. thinking about other things and often gluten-free foods they've added some apple or something you know there's they've added or oh, fructose or mm. inulin even sometimes or they've just loads of sugar and starch. something yeah something <laughs> else in it that might trigger but Generally, they will feel a bit better on a gluten-free diet because they have made this big, you know, they have lowering their FODMAP load. But um, the low FODMAP diet is sort of, because it's the whole story and a complete picture, they feel much more relief of their symptoms. Mm. Uh, but the thing is, people, once we realise this, um, you could say, look, you could have a bread made with gluten, just make sure it's low FODMAP. Um, and that is, for example, sourdoughs, sourdough breads, particularly sourdough spelt bread, but sourdough breads where there's a long proving, long, um, you know, sort of proving time, sort of so that the yeasts had time to work on the fructans, tend to be low FODMAP. We can get a really nice bread, gluten-containing mm-hmm. bread from that, which was you don't have to have a gluten-free bread if you're on a low FODMAP diet. You just need to make sure it's a low FODMAP Bread. So it opens up a whole lot of possibilities for, yes. for 
for your diet. I have to um, say, gluten-free well. bread isn't the most appetizing. If anyone's tried it, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Wouldn't no, recommend it. No, we don't need to have it if you, as only if you're celiac. Exactly. You have to be really careful about gluten. So this also shows the importance of science. Mm-hmm. And be wary of you know pseudoscience or a trend or a movement that's actually not based on good scientific evidence because mm-hmm. the gluten-free was not the gluten-free um, I suppose epidemic it has not been grounded in good science has not been grounded in good science and so um, it really was I think it was um, I guess it sort of it became popular because people it became popular with with consumers and people mm. wanted these products and felt there was some relief in it and I think manufacturers were happy to you know provide provide that without really knowing well, why why is this mm. what are we doing here oh um, absolutely and it was a great way to hide an eating disorder at the same time because orthorexia which also has been hugely on the rise of the fear of not eating clean foods you know I think also exactly. there's a large trend of I'm gluten-free and it's just another way of saying I don't want to eat carbohydrates or there's a certain thing that I don't want to eat because it's going to make me put on weight. And it was a very um, huge link that I saw, especially in clinic, because I, I work with, with eating disorders of people going gluten-free because they're worried um, that it might make them put on weight or that it's not healthy because of the gluten-free mm. epidemic, which I think is a fantastic way to cause um, to actually name that time. Um, mm. was also masking a large area of eating disorders too. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And so doing a full circle on this, what would be, I'd love to ask you as the Monash dietitian, what would be your five top foods for gut health? Oh, okay. Well, I think the five top foods just have to be, um, what we've been telling people to eat for a long time, which is (laughs) a diet rich in whole grains, cereals, Fresh fruits, vegetables. Um, get some legumes onto your plate. Yeah. Um, I don't think we eat enough legumes, mm-hmm. and um, you know, really eat fresh. You know, eat fruit, fresh foods. Um, learn how to cook with some of these interesting ingredients. If you're not sure, um, you know, there's lots of information on. That's where recipes and things are good on the Google. Um, get some fantastic recipes and ideas that way. But I think learning to eat um, naturally fresh uh, produce mm-hmm. and, um, and less, you know, highly processed foods perhaps, which have often got lots of sugars and, and salt in them. Yeah. Um, having said that, obviously grains and cereals do need to be processed in some way, otherwise we can't digest them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's obviously there's, there's some good choices there. You try and get as much fibre as you can. And I think with, you've got, if you're following a low-FODMAP diet, it really is um, a challenge but not impossible to find low-FODMAP grains and cereals that also contain, you know, fibre. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to be careful that you're not, they haven't... Um, What's been added to it doesn't include inulins. Um, and, it's a type of you know, prebiotic fibre. Yes, Anyone because that, that could trigger your symptoms, basically. Yeah. There's a so, lot of inulin supplements out at the moment, I'm seeing. 
actually. Oh, it's it's very very popular. I mean, it's it's not an issue if you've you know unless you've got IBS. You know, I yes. think that if you've, um, but I think that you, um, I don't know whether I don't know if it, um, it can still trigger symptoms even in people mm. who are healthy. It's probably um, so that if you know you just have to be aware that they might be there. Uh, you can get these types of prebiotics naturally in food, of course. Um, but I think if you have IBS, you are also mindful of not having too much because um, you have to find out what you can tolerate. Yeah. Um, and everyone is different. But, you know, you could probably have half a cup of, of lentils, for example, um, mm-hmm. or something like that. Have a look at the app. It gives you an idea. You might find, as I said, some people tolerate GOSS um, very, very well. Um, so it's working out what you can tolerate, but um, uh, working with a dietitian can really help help there in navigating um, all of this information that is out there in um, out there in in the supermarkets and in the food stores because it is it can be a bit overwhelming. There's so much choice there, but just Absolutely. the basics, you know, fresh fruits, vegetables, grains and cereals, legumes, nuts, seeds. Yeah. We need to eat more of those. Yeah, we really do. And I'm going to put all of that information in my show notes. So the links to the app, the links to the patient short course, which I know that Monash have really um, luckily given us a discount code off for any of our listeners. Um, I'll put it all in the show notes because it is, you do need to navigate your way through the FODMAP with also some specialist help from a dietitian. So I feel like all of your information today has been so unbelievably helpful to the listeners. And I know that I'm so thankful that I got you on for the second time around to record this, Jane. Thank you for bearing with me and also coming on to do this again. But before we finish, because I know Melbourne is also the home to a lot of health and wellness, um, no lifestyle, you know, very outdoors lifestyle, beautiful food from when I visited it a couple of years ago. Have to say, some of the best coffee I've ever tasted. Mm. But what does live well, be well mean to you? I always like to ask my guests that at the end of the podcast. Ah, well, I think, you know, balance, you know, good balance between you know, um, good food and uh, activity, and I think. Um, de-stress your life so you know relaxation um, mm-hmm. I think it's just finding that balance and uh, between all of those things and I think one thing that the stage four lockdown <laughs> has taught us mm-hmm. to we actually are allowed to go out for two hours now um, a day to walk and I think oh a lot goodness. of people are, wow I didn't know there was walking. a restriction on exercise okay yes well, I think people are doing, but I think people are going out and walking because mm. we're allowed to, and it's actually um, doing probably more walking in that respect than they normally do. So and I think it's just people have also, pets are very, very popular. Uh, people <laughs> have got their dogs and, oh, and therapy cats. therapy dogs, and, yeah. And it is, it's been great therapy. So I think in some ways it's given people a bit of time out to, to think about things and... Mm-hmm. We have learnt we can do a lot from home. And so it's just yeah. a balance. I think maybe um, the future after COVID might look a little bit different and some things will be, will be good, um, mm-hmm. but I'm sure we'll get to the other side of it. But I think balance in all things is, is you know, is important. 
I completely agree. And I also love that you mentioned dogs because that would absolutely be part of my living well being well is the, being around and animals stuff. and dogs. Mm. Um, so that's fantastic. Jane, thank you so much for coming on the Live Well Be Well podcast. My pleasure. I hope you really enjoyed that episode with the conversation with Jane and I all about FODMAPs and gut health and how to navigate your own journey. As you could tell, it is really multifaceted in your own personal gut health journey and it's not always just about the foods that you eat. It's also about your lifestyle, your stress levels and um, many other areas such as movement that we don't always seem to tend to take such a scrutiny eye at as well as our diet. So hopefully this has given you some information and navigation towards supporting your own individual gut health. If you look at my show notes, I will leave the code which is BWC10 to give you a discount off the short course. And for those of you that haven't yet downloaded the Great British Veg Out, please do. There's a lot of fantastic recipes in there that can support your gut health. It's got a range of different fibres, lots of different vegetables that are very high in fibre, as I just said, and will help support your gut. So do take a look at that. It's free to download from my website, which is sarahannmacklin.com. And if you go to the Great British Veg Out, you can download the free ebook with 30 recipes, shopping lists, and also how to reduce your food waste during it as well and until next time i hope you all live well and be well